was thinking about this. Um, um, years ago, I had a heart problem. And, and so now, uh, every six months, I go and see the doctor. I haven't had any problems. I mean, it, it, it's totally taken care of. They're hoping. I'm hoping. And, uh, but I go every six months, and that's the first thing he checks. That's the first thing he looks for. He listens, listening for anything different, you know, that type of a thing. I have a regular heart checkup every six months. Now, today, I want to talk about this, uh, talk about heart condition and this is kind of our regular heart checkup because there's two or three things, maybe four things that I want to go over, if not every year, at least every other year. And this is one of them. This is something that I, I want us to, to uh, kind of stop, have a, have a quick kind of examine our heart, see where we're at, see what's going on so that we have this checkup so that we make sure, right? And so I want you to look at one of the things I was thinking about this. When I was in grad school, I took some psychology and counseling courses, just enough to be dangerous, really. But one of the things that's uh, the most important book on the shelf of any psychologist is the DSM. And that's short for the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. Because one of the things is if you're going to work with people uh, who, have, who struggles in those areas, you've got to be able to come up with a diagnosis. You've got to be able to understand what's going on and, and have a diagnosis so then you know where to move afterwards. So you, and it can be kind of a bumpy road because we all have this natural resistance to hearing hard truths from other people. We all can struggle with that. Um, and, and, and oftentimes for couples, you find that your, your, your husband, your wife, whoever, they're the person sometimes that has to speak the hard truths in your life. And if you're like me, I tend to at first, and, I, and my wife and I have worked through this, I tend to at first get a little bit like defensive. And then I work through it. And af after a while, she, she's banking on this. I come around and go, that was a really good idea. In fact, some of the best ideas I've come up with have been actually her idea, but I convinced myself it was mine. Now, in the DSM, and one of the things I, I, I talked about this a while back, in the DSM, they have all these ones, and, and one of them is the, is the Narcissistic Personality Disorder, and it's the most extreme one. And so um, that's one that, that people talk about a lot, this grandiose sense of self-importance, this uh, a person who believes they're more special than other people, uh, won't acknowledge mistakes, um, requires excessive admiration, uh, and if you if you if you're thinking about someone, feel free to elbow them as I'm saying this. It's, it's okay. A sense of entitlement. Um, um, just a very, very open pride and arrogance. And one of the things I thought about is, in, in reading this is, in a sense, this is us. When you read this, this, this is a diagnosis of the human condition. We have this, I mean, I even admitted it to you earlier, saying that sometimes pastors can get wrapped up in numbers, and then when numbers drop, their self-esteem drops, their ego can drop, their sense of worth can drop. Why? Because that, that's, a, that's a disorder. You shouldn't, that shouldn't be the way it is, right? And, and, and I think this is us. Just, just like the TV show, this is us. You know, sometimes you see something, maybe you watch that show, and you go, whoa, I've done that. That's me, right? And, and this is what's going on here. This is us. Because... Many of these phrases are simply phrases that describe sin in a person's life. Because the Apostle Paul, among other things, was a master psychologist. You know, careful thinking about the human self, 
how it gets disordered, how it could be helped. That wasn't inv invented by Freud. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we find there's this matchless description of the human condition, a diagnosis of the human condition. And, and, and like any good diag... How would you say? Person who... Di diagnostician? I don't know, something like that. Diagnostician? Maybe. Paul talks about, he talks about the severity of our condition, my condition, your condition, in this passage, and we can't go through the whole thing, but he talks about the severity of the condition. He talks about the nature of the problem. You know, what is it called? And then he points towards healing. He diagnoses and he comes up with a plan for healing. This is, this, this, it's, it's brilliant how it's worded. And so we're going to look at these words and um, they're on your they're on your sheet, all right? I'm going to read the, the top passage of the sheet there from Romans 1, 18 to 23. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their heart to exchange to, to uh, sexual impurity, impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So Paul starts off this by, by saying, he says this very jarring statement. He says in, in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, that's kind of jarring to us. We don't talk that way in our culture and in our day. And, and then he ends it with this, this, this horrific idea, God gave them over. It's like God said, fine, hands off. Go for it. And reap what you sow. That's, that's a terrible thought. And that's a part of the wrath of God. When people, sometimes people ask, you know, what is the wrath of God? I said, sometimes the wrath of God is God just saying, you got it, go ahead. It's yours, own it. When uh, our kids were little, we, we loved to go to the beach. They loved the ocean. And Holly, our oldest daughter, she was maybe three, I don't know. But it's, she is just, just had this wild soul. Like she saw the ocean and she just went, <gasps> and just started staggering it, you know, as three-year-olds go, staggering towards the water. And so we're like, whoa, 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 you know. And so my wife is holding Holly and she's pulling to get into the waves and then it was my turn to hold. You know how you do this, you do it in shifts. And it's my turn to hold. And I said, why does she keep pulling? She wants to go in the way. She, she wants to go in the way. Well, let's just let her. And my wife said, are you, she's, what are you, crazy? I said, no, go ahead. So she's swimming to the other kids. And I was like, go for it, girl. I mean, what's going to happen? A wave's going to hit her and bring her back to me. That's what I'm thinking, right? <laughs> And so she just goes, you know, it's like a zombie. It wasn't quite like a zombie, but it was close. Um, and she just goes staggering in, and this wave just caught her, and it was just like headbutt feet, headbutt feet, headbutt feet. She rolled up, and I picked her up, and I said, look what mean old Mr. Ocean did. And I thought, problem solved, right? She is not, and she's like, <laughs> so that's when I realized 
that's us. We go for it. We go for what will hurt us, what will ultimately cause us. And God sometimes gives people over. Because God is angry at what godlessness and wickedness are doing to the human race and all of his creation. Now, don't read into this the wrath of God. It's not human anger. Don't, don't personalize it like God gets mad. He doesn't have difficulty with anger management. He doesn't blow his top. He doesn't lose control. He says there are things, though, that I hate. You know, we like to hear what God loves. We like to hear God loves us, and he does. But there are things that God says are worth hating. He hates lies that betray people. He hates bullying that demeans and diminishes people. God hates unfairness that victimizes people. God hates gossip and backbiting and sniping that can destroy a community. God hates cruelty, envy, arrogance. He hates it when his people get puffed up. He hates racism. He hates sexual immorality because it demeans bodies and souls. He hates the neglect of the poor when people kind of put a push them to the side when at least I got mine. They don't impact me. And God is saying, here this passage, Paul is saying, this, there's judgment coming because it says, he says, and, and it's key how he says it, God, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. He hates godlessness and wickedness. He hates that. Why? Because he hates what it does to us. He hates what it does to the person who is being wicked, and he hates what it does to the people that it affects as it ripples into a community of people. And Paul says, this is what's true. And he says, we know it in our hearts. We know it inside. You, you, you see that sometimes people don't have to convince you of certain things. Years ago, I... Um, I was reading an interview with the guy who is the producer of that, the, the TV show Breaking Bad. And one of the things they were saying was, there's, they're asking about is there's, there's, there's no good people. There's no good people and, and, and in that show. And they were asking him, when you meet people like that, what do you think will happen? What's going to happen to those kind of people? And he says, oh, they're going to go to hell. And they said, oh, we didn't know you were a Christian. And he goes, I'm not a Christian. I just believe there's a hell. There's got to be. There's got to be. And I thought, isn't that interesting? His heart is telling him something is true, even though he doesn't believe the framework where it comes from. He doesn't believe the biblical framework, but in his heart he knows people have to pay. His point was, and he went on to go over it, was there has to be a judgment. There has to be a setting of things right. Otherwise, this is all worthless, this living we're doing. And he said, otherwise, why am I trying to be good at all? And I think he's missed some important points, but something in his heart is whispering to him, there has to be a judgment. There has to be a balancing of the scales. It has to happen. And Paul says, he says, this is what's coming. And I know what happens sometimes in a sermon like this. People can listen and go, yeah, preach it, Bob. I hope so-and-so is listening. I hope these other people, we need more sermons about the wrath of God because I know some people who need to hear about the wrath of God. And there are people like, they say, oh, there's some politicians that need to hear this, or there's some corrupt people that need to hear this, or some Hollywood people that need to hear this, or some criminals that need to, or what, whoever you don't happen to like right now, they're the ones that need to hear it. 
And Paul says, no, this is about you. This is about me. Because he's a master psychologist and he does something really brilliant here. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the church at Rome. And in the first section there that we just read, the grammar's in the third person. He says, those people out there, they suppress the truth. They do really bad things. And everybody who's listening to his letters going, yeah, right on, Paul. Give it to them. And then you go to chapter 2. And it's on your sheet, but I'll put it up on the screen also. You, therefore. You. You. He changes it now. He said, those people do this. Those people do this. Those people do this. And people are like, yes, give it to them. Both barrels. Do it. And he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. You who set yourself up as the judge of other people and determines what should happen to them. Because if, when he's saying, those people do this, those people do this, those people do this, and you're going, yes, they do deserve that. He's saying, you just pass judgment. You're not the judge. You have no excuse you, who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. He says, what I've been talking about, he says, we do this too. Now we know that God's judgment against those who does, does, does who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, a mere woman, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show... Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day, the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So he changes the person. He says, I want you to personalize this for a minute. I want you to stop and think before you get all up and looking down on other people. He says, you've got to stop and analyze yourself because it's you. Our condition is unimaginably serious and universally shared. And here's his diagnosis. It's idolatry. He says you worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. In Deuteronomy 5, he starts with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. No other gods. The fundamental text in Israel's world the fundamental text of the Old Testament, the one every devout Israelite would say when they got up in the morning and every night before they went to bed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Remember when someone came and asked Jesus, he said, okay, this is what's most important here. Idolatry can be our biggest problem because it's the sin beneath the sin. It's the underlying thing that's going on. Because any time that I sin, I'm allowing some competing desire to have a higher priority in my life than God and His will. And so that means at that moment, I've put something above God. That's idolatry. All sin involves idolatry. And this is serious to God. And our problem sometimes is we don't even know what our real idols are. It's the nature of idolatry. Idolatry can blind us. So Paul, things, Paul says things like this, you suppress the truth by your wickedness. He does it in the third person, but now he's applied it to them. He's saying, hey, your thinking's becoming futile. You claim to be wise, but you become fools. And part of why this, pa this passage can jar us is because we live in such a therapeutic 
um, culture here. You know, we're not used to this kind of language. Years ago, um, when, I, when I was in graduate school, one, one of the, the things we studied was, it's called non-directive client-centered therapy. It's Rogerian, that type of therapy. And it's this idea that you don't give advice to begin with. You don't tell people what to do. You earn their trust and, and try to get them to see what needs to be done because rather than you just telling them if they see what needs to be done, they'll more than likely do it, right? They'll more than likely do it. And so what you do at times is you rephrase what they're saying to show that you understand what they're saying and then get them to now add to it so you can, you can dialogue with them and hopefully they come to this. And, and, and when I just started... Um, Many years ago, a guy came to the church I was at, and uh, he had made an appointment, and he said, I don't want to be here. He walked in the door, but I don't want to be here. My wife's making me see you. Now, what am I supposed to do to get this over with? And so I said, what I hear you saying is, you're not really sure how this is going. And he said, that's what I said. Yes. Now, how do we get this done? And so then I'm thinking, okay, so, and I just don't know what I'm doing very well, you know. And so I'm saying, well, so I hear you saying, what are we doing here? And, uh, and he said, well, he said a word I couldn't reframe very well. And uh, so we talked a little bit more, and then it just ended fairly quickly. Because he just wanted to be out of there, and my idea of how this should go was not going to work. He didn't want to hear it. It's not that Rogerian th therapy is wrong. It's just they all have their drawbacks. But Paul is very directive. He's direct. All right? He's clear. He says the human heart, including mine, including yours, is an idol manufacturing plant. And we have to come to grips with what our idols are. And understand, they're not just statues, right? Even in ancient times, they had a very sophisticated idea of what idols were. Paul even says in Colossians 3.5, put off greed, which is idolatry. He says greed is idolatry. And so even Ezekiel 14.3, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. He's saying... I see idolatry is much more than just some idol. It's something that gets above God. At times in my life, it becomes an idol. And so God is saying, hey, here's the key then. I want your heart. I want your heart. Because if I have your heart, I know I got you. And we set up little idols like reputation or security or power or success or whatever. It could be anything for all number of people. But we set those things up. And, and then what happens? They define our, my identity. And whatever makes or breaks my self-esteem is what I live for. And I can, I can neglect things that are important for that. Or for some, maybe it's even family, which is such a good thing. But it becomes everything. And having a successful family, like having kids who are well-behaved and go to the right schools and marriages that look bright and clean and shiny, it becomes more important than God. Then your family's become an idol. Even things like church, and following the rules can become idols where we get our meaning and how we gauge success. And so on your sheet there, we're going to go over, because I want this to be a practical checkup. You know, when I go see my doctor, he, uh, he gets real practical. He talks about what are you eating? Are you exercising? And, you know, I'm always trying to f fluff it off. 
I'm like, you know, are you exercising? Yes. And that's not good enough for him. He goes, oh, so, so what are you doing? Describe to me the exercises you do. And I said, well, you know, I do walking, and sometimes, sometimes I like, I'll walk a mile, run 10 feet, walk a mile, run 10 feet. I have a little walking, a little like, and he goes, what about strength training? What about weights? Are you do anything with that? Oh, I have, a, I, I have a little card that gets me into a fitness place. I don't know where it is. Um, it's been a long time. And uh, he says, that's really important. You need to do that. Why? Because he gets real specific. He gets real specific about these things. So here we go. Let's do a heart checkup. Let's be specific. All right? First one, do I feel like I have enough money and possessions right now, or do I feel that I need more? Because one of the things is an idol will always tell you you need more. That's something that's key. If you always are thinking about something you need more of, look for an idol in that. Idolatry always says, get more of this. This will make you happy, and it ends up enslaving you. All right? So that's an easy one. So now here's the second one, and just to remind you, the first one is right underneath it. Is there a relationship in my life which I am so attached, to which I am so attached that I have, I have to have that for my life to be truly meaningful? It's not wrong to desire relationships. We're made to desire relationships. We're made that way. But when a relationship becomes the idol, you can ruin. It can ruin you. It can ruin the relationship. It can ruin that person. We've talked about this before. You know, somebody like that, you can't have someone be the person you find meaning in because what you've done is you've put them on a pedestal and you've asked them to do something they are not capable of doing over the long term. They can do in short spurts, maybe, but they can't do it over the long term. Your husband or your wife cannot be your God. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend cannot be your God. And if you're so attached to them that life is only meaningful with that person, you've got a problem there. Now, I know it can feel that way, and I know we can struggle with this. If you love someone, you will struggle with this. But see, earlier I mentioned the book of Job. That's what the point of the book of Job. Is there a God who is worth serving even if nothing goes right, even if I lose everything? And the answer in the book of Job is yes. Now, if you read the book of Job, Job didn't go through this with flying colors, right? He, he, he got upset. He got angry. He got angry at God. But he also said, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. I will serve him to the end, no matter what. Third one, what am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught? And there's the key, if I think I won't get caught. When I was in high school, I got caught cheating on a big test. And I had all sorts of reasons why it was okay for me to do. The class was too hard. It was harder than, than they had said it would be. It didn't relate to real life. It was useless information. The teacher was unreasonable in expectations. I had all kinds of excuses, but the bottom line was I wanted what I had not earned and I wanted to look better than I truly was. That's what the bottom line is. And so, what am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught? The fourth one, what desire is so strong that it can warp my thinking and make me engage in defensiveness, self-justification, denial, and also secrecy? You know, one of the interesting things is that 
Paul wrote these things 2,000 years ago that we're figuring out even now. He says, he says we distort our, the truth at times. When we become involved in an idol, we distort the truth. We, we suppress it. Our thinking goes off in wrong directions. Our foolish hearts get darkened. We say we're wise and we become fools and we exchange the truth for a lie. This is all, I mean, these are biblical phrases, but it's, this is psychological talk that he's using here. Paul understood how human thinking can be distorted by sin and wickedness. There's a fascinating book written quite a few years ago. Um, it's called, the title of the book is Mistakes Were Made, parentheses, but not by me. And it's a book that gets all these studies, hundreds of studies that they, that they, that they, they tap into, and then they, and then they show how it works out in real life in, 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 in uh, major problems in finance and banks and companies and stuff like that. And they were saying that over and over and over, they get people up, and then people say, ah, yes, I'm willing to admit mistakes were made. But think about that. What does that mean, mistakes were made? Your next question is, by who? And they never say, I made mistakes. It's always mistakes were made because it's easier to handle it if you spread the blame around to a whole bunch of people who you don't have to name. And that's always how it works. Mistakes were made. And part of the problem is, let's face it, we all kind of have memory problems. I'm getting them worse now, and it's scaring me. Going to the store a while ago, and my wife said, I'm going to give you a, a list of about five things to pick up from the store. And I said, okay, fine. What are they? And she started telling me, and she says, you should write them down. I don't need to write them down. If I can't remember five things, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be able to drive probably. You know? That's a, so I said, I don't need to write them down. And she said, look, just for me, write them down, please. Okay. So I write down the five things, go to the store, walk into the aisles. Now, I struggle with visually seeing what I'm looking for sometimes. That's how I step over clothes that are on the floor. And I, I'm going through, and it's taking me like 30 minutes to go through Food Lion and find these things. And I'm, you, know how they go, you go from one end of the store to the other, and you finally ask someone, they go, you just passed it, doofus. You know, you go one back over. Oh, there. And so anyways, so I go and I check out four things, get to my car, drive home, walk in the door, and realize... I just bought four things. I have a five-thing list. <laughs> I forgot something that was written down. And so I'm walking in, and I said, oh, I think I forgot something. And, and she said, what? What did you forget? And I got the, I'm getting the four things out, and she says, what did you forget? And all of a sudden it hit me. She doesn't know either. I stuck it back in my pocket. Oh, no, I think I got them. <laughs> I think I got them all. Ah, yeah, yeah. I didn't forget. <laughs> Silly me. Just a momentary lapse there. Because we're both struggling. And that, this is what happens. Memory problems, you know, they get worse as you get older, but they happen because memories, and this is something in the, uh, in the book, Mistakes Were Made, they said this, your memories are distorted in a self-enhancing direction in all kinds of ways. Now, self-enhancing direction is nice therapeutic language for godlessness and wickedness, right? Self-enhancing. Your memories dis get distorted in a self-enhancing way. It turns out people, and this is something they brought out, turns out people remember voting in elections which they did not vote in. People remember voting for winning candidates for whom they did not vote. 
People remember giving more money to charity than they actually give. People remember saying brave things they never actually said. People remember winning arguments they never actually won. People remember their children walking, talking, and riding bikes at an earlier age than their children actually walked, talked, or rode a bike. Why? Because our memories over time get distorted in a self-enhancing direction. Right? There's a guy named Frederick Nietzsche who wrote over a century ago, I have done that, says my memory. I have not done that, says my pride. And my pride remains inexorable. Eventually, memory yields. Eventually, memory yields. Pride wins. We have this, strong, this thing in us that we tend to distort. We tend to distort what we think. It's funny how that works in our lives. So let's keep going. Number five, what, what desire do I have that sometimes gets in the way of my paying attention to God or fully following God? All right? So think about this. This is actually saying, is there a desire that gets in the way? Is there an idol that I am struggling with? Is it work, family, success, achievement, money, approval, power, reputation, security, sex, your body, anger? I cannot replace an idol just by turning away from it. I have to turn towards something. I have to use something to work in that gap. Tim Keller talks about this. He calls it an overwhelming positive passion. Um, and, and, and that is kind of an interesting way of putting it. You know, when I am thinking about something, uh, something maybe that I shouldn't do, and I go, oh, I know that's wrong. And yet, ultimately, I do it. What happened? Somehow, I convinced myself that what that sin will do for me is more, is better and more important than what God says. I convince myself of that. I, I create, in a sense, an overwhelming positive passion for something. All right? When I was young and I cheated on that test, I knew cheating was wrong. But I decided getting a good grade on that test was much more important and would help me more than actually doing what's right and putting the work in that's required. And so I did. It was an overwhelming positive passion. You know, Zacchaeus had an overwhelming positive passion for money. He was an Israelite. Think about this. He gave up everything. He gave up his reputation, his community, his friendship, his honor, his integrity to get money as a tax collector. And then one day he meets Jesus. And he says, that's it. I'm done with money. I'm going to pay back everybody I cheated four times what I cheated them from. And I'm going to take half of what I have and give it to the poor. He's, what happened? Money was his overwhelming positive passion. And then he met Jesus. And Jesus replaced it. And he acted accordingly. He said, I've cheated people. I owe them not just what I've cheated. I owe them interest due. I owe them more than what I cheated them out of. And he makes it right. You think about um, Jacob. In the Old Testament, young, young man named Jacob meets a young woman named Rachel, tells his father he wants to marry her and offers to work for him. And he does that. You know this story. Hopefully some of you remember this story. Remember how long he worked? Oh, is it here? It's here. Seven years. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. Look at this next line. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. An overwhelming positive passion. Think about this. Every day, Jacob showed up for work. And he doesn't just show up for work. He shows up for work with a thrill because 
of what he's doing and who it's for. Anyone here willing to work seven years for a woman? If you're a male and you have a brain in your head, your hand should have gone up, <laughs> right? For crying out loud, I just threw you a hanging curveball. <laughs> Come on, it doesn't cost you anything. No one's going to take you up on it, <laughs> right? Ah, oh, slow learners. <laughs> Jacob had an overwhelming, positive passion. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And you think about how this goes totally against our world. Our world says, here's life. Right here. Here's, here's life. Whatever, you know, whatever ad you're watching, here's life. It's a car. It's food. It's this. It's that. It's, what it is. it's a nice house. It's, you know, wh whatever it is. Here's life. And Jesus says, if you chase it, you will never get it. You will never get the life that you want. But he says, but he who takes up his cross, she who takes up her cross and follows me this way, service, will get the life they've been looking for. Not because they're chasing life, but because they're following Jesus. Then life comes. Whoever wants to save his or her life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. He says it goes directly, and this is what I love about the Word of God. The Word of God is, is countercultural. It goes, it goes against how we would intuitively think. We would think if you work hard for the good things, that's where life is. And God says, no, no. Life is over here. You've just, you, you've, you've labeled it wrong. But what you really need, your life, your true life is over here. And it's when you take up your, your cross and follow me. It's when you give up on your life and follow me, then you find it. Then you find it. And I love how he phrases this. Because he says, you will find it. You won't earn it. It'll be like, oh, man, I never knew this was here. I wish I could tell you the times in my life where I said, I never knew. I didn't imagine that it would be like this. This is so awesome. When I was young, I had such small ideas I had such small goals compared to what God has for me and for you. Idolatry brings slavery. And Jesus says death brings freedom. Die for me and you'll be set free. Now freedom comes at a price. Obviously the gospel is free because Jesus paid it all. But this is that good news that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, that life with God, forgiveness, eternity is available right now as a gift of grace. It's available to those who repent and ask. And then for us as we try to follow him through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, we change from the inside out. And we discover, we discover that sometimes there can be joy in places where no one thinks there's joy. We discover sometimes we think that there can be love and, and meaning in places where people say this is a horrible thing. 
we discover sometimes that in the midst of terrible things, we can see God work and do incredible things, and we're blessed to see it. Already, you know, with our, our group in Arizona, and seeing how God has, is working, how God has prepared the way for them to be there, and God is, is working now in conversations that they're having and things that they're able to do. It's just amazing. And God says, I have this for you. But it starts with saying, I will, I will lose my life for him. I will take up my cross and follow him. I won't chase life. I won't chase life. And I know that this is a constant thing for us. This is a constant thing for me. Because I still sometimes, you know, catch myself thinking, boy, if I had that, then things would be good. Or if this happened, then things would be really good. And I catch myself going, what are you thinking? You thinking that's the key? It never is. And we know that. We know that. But we struggle with putting it into practice in our life. And so I would encourage you, this little sheet, you could take it home, stick it somewhere where you might see it a couple times this week, and just keep doing a heart checkup. Saying, God, where's my heart right now? Where's my heart right now? Where are you right now in my life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Lord, and even though sometimes the truth is uh, difficult and challenging, we thank you, Father, that you confront us with the truth so that as we accept and work through it and apply it, we begin to live life the way you meant for us to live it, the way we were created to live it. And Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to do that. Father, we pray now, you know every heart in this room, you know where we all stand before you, you know the struggles we all have, the joys and the heartaches that are going on at this time in this room. And Lord, we just thank you that you are involved in, in all of them, that you care deeply for each one of us. And so we rest in that, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering now. And uh, if you are visiting, as our guest, we want you to know we're not expecting you to give. Um, we don't want you to feel pressure in that way at all. Thank you. Thank you.